You're listening to It's a Long Story, a podcast from the Sydney Opera House that uncovers the stories behind some of the world's big ideas. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. Sarah Smarsh is the daughter of a teenage mother who was the daughter of a teenage mother who was the daughter of a teenage mother. Born into a dirt-poor family in rural Kansas, Sarah realised young that if she could get educated and not get pregnant, she might be able to break the pattern of those women in her family. Her memoir, Heartland, is a wonderful tribute to those women, as well as a proud insider's look into a culture that is often mocked, reviled and misunderstood. It's also a searing critique of a political and economic system that entrenches inequality in America. Sarah Smash, welcome to It's a Long Story. Thanks so much for having me on. There is so much that I want to talk to you about with this book that you've written um, and about your story. I'd like to start back in 1980, which was the year that you were born. What sort of family were you born into? Well, on my father's side of the family, I was born a fifth-generation Kansas farm kid, specifically wheat farming, um, descended from a long line of essentially poor European immigrants. Uh, And on my mother's side of the family, they were a less rural bunch, but uh, equally Um, members of what we might call the working poor in class terms. Um, My mother's family, they were from Wichita, which is the largest city in Kansas. It's no bustling metropolis, but when I was a kid, it was a few hundred thousand people. And so uh, my my mother's side of the family, my maternal line was kind of some tough, salty, Midwestern broads, spitfire kind of gals. And, uh, And my mother met my farm boy, dad and and uh, that's how I came to be. You've written, and I'm quoting you here, I was the proverbial teen pregnancy, my very existence, the mark of poverty. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? Well, so I mentioned that I'm a fifth generation farm kid. That's by way of my, my father's, his family's legacy of farming. On my maternal side, I inherited a different generational cycle, which is that teen pregnancy that that uh, quote just referenced. So so what did I mean by, uh, w- with that line referencing um, just a, a kind of m- marker of poverty, which I think in, in global terms, and, and certainly I can speak for my country, uh, in this in the States, it, teen pregnancy correlates with poverty in some uh, complicated ways. And uh, so, so I had a an understanding, you know, at a at a very early age that my mom was sort of painfully young to be a mother. She was seventeen when she became pregnant with me, and eighteen when she had me. And uh, so she was essentially a kid herself mm. uh, when when I was a, a child, and and still bearing uh, some of the wounds of her own difficult upbringing. Those wounds had a lot to do with poverty. And I grew up with this sense that um, females um, experienced a particular burden in the realm of economic uh, disadvantage that had something to do with their biological um, predisposition to, let's say, bear a child. Um, The best that I can figure, uh, poverty makes motherhood harder and motherhood makes poverty harder. And this Mm. is a little bit of a cyclical trap and... um, and and I had uh, somehow just kind of a marrow level um, sense that I was the expression, the human expression of that cycle um, realized. Yeah. You say that um, your mum's age when you were born sort of set you apart, but at the same time it was the norm within your family. Mm. Yeah. 
Tell me about your grandma, your mother's mother, Betty, because sure. she is such a great character uh, in, in your book. Mm, I'm glad you think so because I, I think of her as the star of the show. I, I'm not sure that I've shared this in an interview before, but when I was a little I, – I knew I was going to write this book when I was a little kid, believe it or not, but I always thought of it as the story of my grandma's life. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the foundation of where the creative journey began. But anyway, why her life might merit having a book about it, uh, let me tell you. She was born in 1945. As World War II was winding down, um, a level of poverty beyond what I ever knew. I I always had enough to eat and a roof over my head and shoes on my feet. You know, class and poverty, they're quite relative experiences. So for someone who is, as my family might say about well-off folks, high on the hog, Mm. you know, you say poor and it, it creates this monolith of people living in poverty, the poor. Well, when you're in that world, there is a strata. There's a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy, absolutely. Mm. Betty was born quite low on that strata and, um, and uh, she learned she had a very violent alcoholic father and a mother who had some mental health issues mm-hmm. that went uh, woefully untreated probably uh, for her gender and her lack of um, finances. finances, yes. And so Betty just kind of had to become a fighter to survive. And she was a very headstrong, outspoken, bold female at a moment when those attributes were not necessarily um, being celebrated by uh, society and culture. So, you know, the 1950s during her childhood, that's a that's a moment when um, the United States is prizing the idea of the domestic housewife who uh, has her husband's drink waiting when he gets home. Well, the real, well, the reality that Betty saw in her home was her her mom worked in factories. Her mom worked harder than her drunk dad did mm. um, and, and for less wages and sometimes got a beating for her trouble. And so, um, you know, Betty just was a kind of came up in a, in a very severe environment, but always had, um, and pardon the cliche, but I just think that that if it applies to anyone, it's her, uh, a heart of gold. She, as a teenager, to, to get back to your initial question, she became pregnant with my mother at the age of 16. Uh, the the father was a, a violent young man, and um, and that sort of set her off on a journey of fighting for her uh, rights, for her own economic freedom, for her own stability in a world where she was vulnerable to uh, violence and um, and let's just say a, a severe economic instability. I suppose the thing about Betty's story is just how much it has to do with being a woman. And I guess the injustice that came with that for her as a woman, as a woman without money and without the resources to become educated at that point. Mm -hmm. The story of how she lost her son Beau, I think, is so typical of the lack of justice for women. What happened there? So Betty did manage to escape my biological grandfather, the who was that first, um, you know, uh, violent marriage, and 
she and her by then divorced mother, because her mom finally said, "I, you know, I've I've had it with with your violent dad too," and and so there was this moment in the 1960s where my my mother's side of the family just uh, by circumstance of of daughters being born rather than sons, and and also by a, a series of divorces in which. Um, you know, very young mothers, um, more than one generation of them were either divorced or had been abandoned and so on. There was just this little pack of of these nothing-to-lose females. My great-grandmother, uh, Dorothy, her daughter, Betty, my grandma, uh, as well as my grandma's two sisters. Um, one of those sisters had a couple babies and um, who were both girls. Uh, Betty had, had had my mother, who was, a, who was very small, so you've got just like this band of multi-generational of mul- women, multi-generational women um, who, as my grandma would say, didn't have two dimes to rub together, and they, uh, you know, at one point just said, "We want to, we want to get out of this area of Wichita where there's all these foul men." Uh, who have um, ill will toward us, and they loaded up a couple of, um, you know, beat-up cars that uh, could at least get them across the kind of flat Great Plains where I was born to the next place, and they didn't know where that next place was going to be. They pointed their car west just because it felt right. They crossed the state line into Colorado, and their car broke down in some little town, and and my great-grandmother, Dorothy, looked around and said, hey, this looks like an okay place. They found jobs at a diner waiting tables. They found some cheap motel that would let them uh, uh, rent a room for you know a pittance a, at a weekly rate. Uh, at that diner, my grandma met another guy, and uh, she quite quickly became pregnant. They got married. Uh, he ended up being quite abusive. And uh, the 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 baby that was produced from that marriage, she then you know she by then she has two children by two different fathers, uh, one of whom is violent back in Kansas, one of whom is violent right here in this small town that she has moved into where she's an outsider. She's wearing mini skirts and go-go boots in the 1960s at a moment when that's definitely raising some eyebrows among the, um, you know, uh, the more prim and proper residents of this small Colorado burg. What do you do if you get smacked around at home? You call the cops in that small town when your your husband is in good standing in that community and he's he drinks beer with those same cops at the pool hall on Friday mm. night. So it became clear to her that for her own safety and that of her children, she was going to need to leave. And she did. Um, Her ex-husband then insisted that he would get custody of their child. It can be quite dysfunctional in terms of how justice is handed down when, you know, somebody's buddies with somebody else and um, somehow this judge found it to be just to uh, award custody to an, an abusive man rather than to this very young woman. And part of what the legal uh, system did to um, uh, discount Betty as as a mother seeking to retain custody was to, to say to her, shame her essentially and say, you're now twice divorced. You're only in your early 20s. Look at how you dress. You don't have any money. Um, you have two babies by two different men. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was really a kind of a character assassination. But also you're not providing these children with stability. Oh, you yes. know, and what a narrow view of stability that is. Yes, and this is the trick. And there's so many aspects of um, the various violences that are done to women, whether they're systemic, whether they're 
um, you know, whether it's a literal physical violence or or um, sexual assault or the sort of just mundane legal proceedings we're talking about is the, the system is set up, it, it's a trick and you can't win. So in this case, they're saying to her, you can't have your son until you can show that you can provide a stable household. And what they meant by that was that you have to show that you're married to a man who makes a decent m- amount of money um, because now you're this twice-divorced single woman trollop with two kids by two different men. The system set her up to fail. But the fact that she was criticized for not being able to provide a stable home is kind of super ironic because she was your stable home. Yeah, sort of life back and forth escaping men and marriages and towns and places. What was that like for Jeannie, your mum, her daughter? Uh, During her years essentially growing up under, I would say, um, Betty's roof, but it's more like Betty's mini roofs, Mm -hmm. um, she moved, I think, 48 times. Mm -hmm. And to put that into perspective in terms of just a child's experience, which is is often kind of anchored by um, schooling, in in the States, our first grade is called kindergarten. You're usually about five years old when you um, have that term in your your grade school years. And and little Jeannie attended four different kindergartens Mm. by the time that school year was over. So an incredibly turbulent and chaotic upbringing for her. How did that affect her as as an adult? You know, um, I don't think it's – I always stop short of claiming that I can, you know, uh, say why something happened or what made someone who they are. For all her brilliance and togetherness and good humor, uh, she she had very deep scars that were – that took her many years to work out and and she was certainly working them out when when I was under her roof. Mm. It felt like her story was one of a sort of lost potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, I think that's right. And I think, you know, I have my sensibilities as a writer and kind of an artistic type in the in the bigger picture of my family and in which that's not the norm. one doesn't really have a chance to be those things, by the way, if you're working fields or factories and, and they're, they're not qualities that are that are encouraged among uh, the working class. Um, but but it is my innate my my nature and so too my mother's. And um, and so I I can feel that aspect of her of her life trajectory very keenly as someone who sympathizes uh, with being a female in poverty who, um, you know, is w- wants to write, is interested in language and art, and 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 yet you're you're born into this place that is utterly inhospitable to those aspirations for some economic goal, uh, some economic reasons, some cultural, and uh, and she, you know she she found a way to always harness her creative gifts, but but they were very rarely seen by the world. Mm. Um, and, and and appreciated so, and acknowledged. Or, or appreciated and acknowledged, exactly. And so uh so in, in in some ways somehow I got to, you know, get the the attention and accolades for a book that that I'm sure that had she had a different unfolding of circumstances, she might have written her own. One thing that your mother did do, unlike her female forebears, was not marry 
violent guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your dad like? Well, my dad, um, you know, he he looks like what is sort of the caricature of a working class guy. You know, he's been a he's born into farming, but um, he's also worked in construction for decades. So, you know, his arms are darkened or reddish brown from the sun, beat up hard hat on his head, dirty jeans, work boots. Um, and, and so people, I, I have found then that it's, it's surprising, I guess, because to, to people, because they have an idea of what that, what that man is or represents. Um, and, uh, he was probably the most maternal force in my life is the way that I describe him and, and a poetic guy. So he wasn't a big book reader like my mom, but, uh, all the same had just kind of this, um, this uh, sweet poetic side. He used to write little poems on scraps of lumber on the work site and give them to me when I was a little girl in our very um, brusque and kind of like uh, hyper-masculine social order. And he couldn't share those strengths of uh, his with with other men and and certainly probably felt uh, sheepish about being interested in poetry in school. And so... um, but yeah, he's he's a lovely guy, and and to go back to your original point, my uh, one of my mom's um, great wisdoms was to, you know, she, she did see her like I mentioned, her mother eventually found a guy who who was very kind and decent to her, and that was the um, the cycle that she chose to repeat. And lucky for me, mm-hmm. so your parents were married, and after you, not long after you, your little brother Matt came along. Mm-hmm. What were your early memories of that household? What sort of home did they create for you all? That was a that was a hard household for me. That was, um, you know, my mom's very young, my dad young too. He's out working two, sometimes three jobs. She's working too when she can, when there's somehow some sort of childcare available where she can go earn a wage, um, you know, putting makeup on middle-class women at the mall um, makeup counter or um, she was often involved in sales. And my dad, of course, would be doing manual labor. So they were both just bone tired. Mm. Uh, you know, it wasn't a household where someone is saying, oh, what, what do, th- how does little Sarah feel tonight about what happened today? Tell us about your school day and what would you like for dinner is like, is a very um, severe household, not for lack of love, but just for lack of having anything left to give to um, the domestic order or lack balance. Of energy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, mixed in with that is, the is an, a, I think, a profound anger that my mom was carrying with her from the uh, woes of her own youth. And, um, and you felt that anger directed towards you sometimes as well, didn't you? I did. You know, I felt like as as many children who have lived in very tense households like that know, then then sometimes the people that we love the most are the ones who see the explosion. So school for you was a bit of an escape, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just it, it was I was well suited for that environment because I was I somehow my nature was I was good at being very disciplined. So, for example, my I don't come from a family who necessarily prized. Um, education or schooling is certainly not the idea of university. No, no one where I was from had ever accessed that level of education in school was just sort of this thing that the government made you do. And then when you're done, you go to work. Um, and, uh, and, and so nobody was saying to, was, you know, asking me about my grades or telling me to do my homework. 
So as a child, I'm looking around and I'm al- I'm always feeling a little bit on the outside of things as as an observer. Like, um, you know, this isn't quite the right metaphor, but sort of like someone carrying a camera around, and that camera sort of creates a distance between the self and what's being observed. And and that was the sort of the psychological uh, experience of my childhood. And I'm sure that I formed that distance to sort of desensitize myself to the more painful aspects of that household we were describing and, and other environments. But the way this ties back to your question, I think perhaps is, um, that little trick of psychological removal made me, you know, an observer, um, Part of that is just the hypervigilance that that children in um, volatile environments develop to survive. But I also had kind of an artistic setting, and and so I'm looking around, and 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 I, I would I would write stories, and I would create based on what I saw. But all of these things I'm describing were, as a child, much more just a felt experience. And so I knew at some sort of deep sensory level that I I wanted my life to be somehow different from the one I had been handed. And there and now that I have been observing with this sort of detached kind of camera lens what's going on around me and assessing it, I have figured out here's what I don't do become pregnant very, very young. Here's what I don't do, um, get myself into some sort of violent situation. Here's what I don't do, not graduate from high school. And so the public school system was kind of step one. I saw I've, I need to harness this institution for essentially, you know, it was in some ways sort of a, an opportunistic way of looking at school. Yeah, I loved the classroom, but I also knew um, the only way I'm going to afford college is if I get a scholarship. Yeah. And so therefore study hard. But you were also recognized by some teachers mm-hmm. along the way yeah. in a way that maybe you hadn't been at home in, in that same sort of way. Yeah. There's a story that I read somewhere um, when you were in the fourth grade, you read the word genius in a teacher's assessment that had been handed to your mother and it made you cry. Mm, yeah, it just gave me goosebumps even when you said that because I the um, visceral memory is so deep of that moment where... You know, if you're you're born into a certain class and and no doubt um, a, a skin color less privileged than mine um, or or to be female and, and all these various iterations of identity and self that that kind of put you on the losing end of some continuum, what you're going to get from society, whether it's popular culture or the news media or your peers at school, are messages that you aren't worth very much or you're not as worth as much as a boy because you're a girl or you're not worth as much as the white person because you're a little girl of color or you're not worth as much as the rich folks because your family lives in a trailer. So, you know, in conjunction with being born into a family that wasn't necessarily inquiring into my studies, uh, I was also, you know, just sort of steeped in a culture that was uh, suggesting to me that I was quote unquote white trash. Uh, trash isn't a very nice word about human beings, and it suggests um, that they are disposable and uh, maybe even like smelly and undesirable. And and so to have that—that that was the first moment. You know, I'd gotten a, pats on the back here and there for this and that, but that was a moment when someone said, you know, someone said we we have crunched the numbers, and we the numbers have said that you have something good going on. You're officially and, um, clever. And you're officially clever. Exactly. I need that T-shirt. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was um, it was a profound moment for me. Hmm. A few years before that, your, your parents' marriage hadn't 
survived. Mm-hmm. Um, and after living in a variety of houses, you moved in with your grandma Betty yeah. and grandpa Arnie. And Betty had a job by this point. Yeah. What was she doing? So you know how I was saying before that once she met a good man, she stuck with him. I mean, it wasn't that she had this chaotic, turbulent youth because she didn't have any sense. It's just there, you know, the the worse off you are, sometimes the worse off your options. And uh, and so too it goes with with jobs and employment. And for her being a poor female in in the '60s, what has she got? Well, she waited tables in truck stop diners. By the 1970s, the United States federal government passed uh, legislation called Title IX that provided that uh, at least in writing, uh, not always in practice, but but uh, legally. Um, uh, workspaces could no longer discriminate against women for their sex. And these grants would enable women to get some training uh, so that they could enter a place like an office. Uh, Betty got one of those grants. She went to a little business college, they called it, you know, essentially learned how to type file things and kind of set her up to be what in earlier days they might have called secretarial school. And um, and so she got a job at the county courthouse in downtown Wichita. So it's all of 11 or 12 stories, but that's a veritable skyscraper in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, you know, for for her, this is quite a glamorous gig. And she thought it was a joke, actually. It's the least hard she'd ever worked and the best pay she'd ever gotten. <laughs> and I think we, most of us could probably agree that's how it works. Um, and so um, anyway, she's working as a secretary in this, uh, for under a judge in the uh, juvenile court system, the juvenile court, criminal court, adult criminal, and so on are all housed under the same roof. And a subpoena officer, that's a, a man who would go out into the community and deliver um, legal papers saying you're due in court at X, Y time. He quit and she saw that opening come up. She knew it would be more money and she knew she'd be able to get out of this office that struck her as kind of boring and dull, um, her being quite a bold woman. And the judge said, uh, that's no job for a woman. It can be quite dangerous work if you're knocking on someone's door and saying, these papers say you have to be in court. And so he on. obviously didn't know her. Right, yeah. He didn't know that she was probably better suited than most men for such a charge. And um, so when he told her it wasn't a job for a woman, she said, you better check the law on that because I'm pretty sure um, that, that in fact it is a job for a woman. And she got the gig. She worked up to a, a slightly higher post called probation officer where she's essentially in charge of um, largely men who had been uh, – you know, in jail or prison for some crime and had been released and she oversaw them. And that was my childhood. Uh, She would often, during the summers when my mother's working, my dad's working, um, no one can afford a babysitter. So I would kind of tag along with Mm -hmm. her to work and somehow her coworkers were tolerant of this. I would play in the elevators, cause trouble in the stairwell. Sometimes I'd run errands for her, takes a a file from floor five to seven. And and I thought I was pretty hot stuff. (laughs) Um, And uh, and so she worked under this great judge, uh, the first African-American judge to sit on that bench actually there in Sedgwick County. And and it it was a pretty cool thing to see as a kid. It was also there that you started doing some journalism-y style stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. The fact that I went down the, the road of specifically journalism and nonfiction I think might have a lot to do with those summers and many afternoons that I spent with uh, Grandma Betty at work. So to keep me entertained, she would give me a, a notepad. She would sit next to the judge at the front of the courtroom during various hearings and trials. That's where a probation officer sits there to the right. She was also a, a bailiff and... 
Um, so she'd give me a notepad and say, take here, Sarah, take notes during this hearing. And then I want you to type up your report on what happened. I'd go back to her office and type it up on a, on her typewriter. This is like the late eighties into early nineties. And she'd review the report. And, and, um, (laughs) and so, so, so I'm in this system that, um, you know, at least in theory is about getting to the truth, getting the facts. The other thing that you've said about your schooling is that even though you're excelling and getting A's and getting recognized by teachers, you're always still the poor kid. I threw myself into school in, with a sense of kind of and and became what we might call kind of an overachiever in a way that doesn't quite gel with stereotypes of, you know, the, the poor kid who might be kind of shrinking into a corner out of shame or embarrassment. I just kind of um, went in the opposite direction and was was quite bold. And, you know, I, I had a lot of insecurities, but I didn't let them show. Mm. Um it was it was a it was a complicated psychological experience. So look, you got through high school and you weren't pregnant. So yeah, that mission accomplished, right? Um, and you won a scholarship to mm-hmm. um, to the local university, first in family to go to the university, and you now have three degrees. I want mm-hmm. the listener to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you've described that period, and I'm going to quote you here. There are many complicated reasons why so few people cross the socioeconomic divide in any lasting way. But one of the reasons is simple. It's a painful crossing. These were the hardest years of my life. Mm-hmm. How yeah. are they hard? Oh, gosh. I mean, let me count the ways. that. First, let me start with just the... Um, I think one of the reasons I became a journalist is it really rubs me the wrong way when the story that we tell about something and the truth of it are two vastly different things. And university, the story that we tell about it in the United States at least is these would be the best years of your life. This is something you hear from, you know, the the next generation up who are looking back with nostalgia mm. on their time at university. For me, I was like stealing food to live. Mm. Um, I was I had scholarship that covered tuition but I was, in addition to being a full-time student, working two, sometimes three jobs so that I could pay my, my living bills. I took issue with sitting in a classroom that my hard work had paid for and having a professor, you know, roll his eyes that I came in late five minutes to class, exhausted from a work shift, and say to me, do your parents know that you're late to class because they're paying good money for your oh. tuition? Mm. You know, these sort of assumptions. And, you know, perhaps that is a majority experience. But um, I I became – those years – I mentioned before that I, I didn't know I was poor when I was growing up. You sure and, learned it in university. But I sure learned it at university. And that's where I, I think of my – what we might call kind of a class consciousness really awakening. Mm. The other thing that happened to you at university was that you had a political shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was what, – what, what happened there? My upbringing, it was not a deeply political environment I was stewed in. You know, it, I, I really more so than conservative or liberal people come from lib- come from people who didn't sense that they had any civic agency. Mm-hmm. You know, they're geographically isolated from power centers by being rural farmers and they're um, 
they're certainly socially isolated from power centers by way of class and education. And so um, people just sort of regarded politics and the idea of government at a distance once in a while would weigh in something along the lines of they're all crooks anyway. Um, that said, just the sort of general climate that I came up in as a child in the 80s and then a teenager in the 90s is what I would call like a moderate conservatism. And so, you know, I entered university with these vaguely conservative notions more so about economic policy. It was around my junior year. I was probably 20 or 21. And I took a sociology class as a um, that was called the sociology of families. I didn't quite know even what it was. It just fulfilled some requirement in mm -hmm. my general education um, requirement. And um, and what what the class ended up being was essentially research and data on how does the family unit impact one's connection to and relationship to society. What I learned in that class was right or left, Republican or Democrat. Who cares? The numbers say that if you are if you are born into if you are born as a member of a black family then your outcomes are more likely to xyz and less likely to mm -hmm. xyz than say a white family if you are born into a poor family as i was and so on and so forth and it was like oh i have been raised with this conservative american idea of pulling your bootstraps up if you work hard you get what you deserve i never told you know i wouldn't have gone totally in on that because I knew a lot of hardworking people who didn't have much to show for it. But I, but I still thought, you know, like this is, um, that it could change. I, I thought it could change. And I didn't, I didn't put much into what we today might call identity politics. Mm -hmm. uh, that term wasn't, um, in the fray yet at, in those years. But, um, but I thought, uh, you know, we've all got a pretty equal shot here. And, um, that class just sort of blew that out of the water. I see, the, the fallacy in those um, ideas about the, the the other camp, the bad guys who have the other political views, because I myself have, you know, my my first election in 2000, I was 18 years old and I hadn't, I was two years away from my political awakening and I voted for George W. Bush mm -hmm. in his first election. Um, by 2004, I had swung further left than probably <laughs> anybody I, I knew, um, even in some urban centers. Um, but... Uh, that my point there is that when my information changed, I went to college. No one had some liberal agenda to brainwash me. I just got a, a new set of information. And that set of information certainly doesn't make everyone a liberal or a progressive, as we can see from the many highly formally educated staunch conservatives who run various countries around the world. But for me, um, that was the outcome. One of the things that you talk about is um, the way that the people that you come from have been classified, particularly in a lot of liberal media sources and particularly since the election mm -hmm. of Trump in 2016. Mm -hmm. How fair do you think are those kind of categorizations of mm -hmm. those people being Trump's base and mm -hmm. being ignorant and voting against their own self-interest and mm -hmm. all of those things that you hear so much in yeah. popular discourse. Yeah. I think that all of those narratives are incredibly misleading and in some cases convenient to the heights of power. And I'll explain. So uh, in the 2016 election, white folks specifically, um, not just poor or rural white folks, but white folks 
at every income level voted for Trump at about the same rate. Uh, there is a little bit of a of a distinction uh, along urban rural and along lines of form you know college degree or no college degree. But in terms of like who is his base, his base is white people. Mm. And I don't care how much money they make or how many degrees they have. The White House right now is full of rich white people with a lot of degrees who are enabling his shenanigans every day. Um, so, so that's critique one. And then on the point about, you know, ignorance, let's say my critique two is this idea of like the, the, the dumb farmer out in the Midwest who is voting against his own best interests and how stupid would you have to be to blah, blah, blah. Like, um, you know, inherent in the critique voting against their own best interests is a is is an implication that those people must just be stupid. Mm. And I know them not to be stupid and in fact I know them to not all be Trump voters. And so um you know to to describe that people and place as a political or cultural monolith is misleading and and I find it to be very convenient for middle class and upper middle class white people whose votes for him have gone little examined. So it's kind of like, look over here at these backwards rubes who mm. got us into this mess. Someone to blame. Someone to blame while they are cashing in on their privilege every day. You write somewhere, and I'm quoting you here, uh, it's become less acceptable in recent decades to make racist or sexist statements, but blatant classism generally goes unchecked. Mm-hmm. Do you think that class is the kind of not yet well-discussed enough frontier in the kind of identity politics um, mosaic? I do. To mix metaphors. (laughs) Yes, I do. And and how we know is it is so often left out of the discussion. So, you know, as as good liberals, we will be, you know, um, cultivating our understandings of our own privileges and and making gestures through language and investments and and, uh, workplace practices and so on. Um, about hopefully gender and race and orientation and so on. Um, I I often and, and I'm sensitive to it because it's what I write about. I, I often see that 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 class is just not even acknowledged mm. in those conversations. I think that it is shifting to some extent, um, perhaps in the states, perhaps because of that 2016 election, uh, where where class became such a a discussion point, but. Um, but yeah, I think that it it is particularly challenging to discuss in part because so many of, you know, let's say um, more wealthy industrialized countries like the United States, perhaps Australia and, and many others are, are telling themselves a, a story about their society that isn't quite true and it, and it doesn't leave room for the fact of uh, a class structure. So if we're saying this is a meritocracy and we're all good people who who treat one another fairly, then it would make sense that we wouldn't address class. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in fact, uh, I have found uh, the United States to be not a meritocracy, but rather a plutocracy and uh, one that has some, some very insidious um, systemic structures in place to make sure that people where I come from never end up writing a book to tell about it. Well, Sarah Smash, thank you so much for coming in to 
talk to me today. It's been a real pleasure. This has been so great. Thanks for the opportunity. Sarah Smarsh joined us for All About Women 2019. You can listen to her talk from the festival on our other podcast, Ideas at the House, and you can find the link for that in our show notes. Next week, we talk about desire with German journalist, author and philosopher Carolyn Imker. This podcast is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program and made by the It's a Long Story podcast team. Flo Mitchell, Nerida Ross, Susie Anderson, Josh Milch, Joshua Craig, John Gardner, Riley Edwards, Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.